I think when you have a celebrity, a lot of the time people are like, they're public goods. And in some ways they are, but they're not, they're human beings. Hey everyone, my name is Alicia Miranda and welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I'm the chief executive here at IG, and we're a London-based social impact strategy consultancy on a mission to bridge the gap between fundraisers, businesses, and philanthropists. At IG, we have unique insight into both donors and fundraisers and want to help them better understand each other. And so, we bring you season two of What Donors Want, our fresh, dynamic, and slightly irreverent view into major gifts fundraising, straight from the donor's mouth. Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel Stephenson Chef, the producer and host of the show, and I'm so excited to share this next episode with you. Our guest was Sarah Elisa Miller, the director of philanthropy and special projects at 5000 Broadway Productions, production company of the one and only Lynn Manuel Miranda. Sarah's had an incredibly diverse career that's taken her across the restaurant industry, working with nonprofits on creating food systems change. A longtime friend of Lynn Manuel, she now manages his and his family's growing philanthropic portfolio, known as the Miranda Family Fund. So as you probably know, Lin-Manuel is the globally renowned, award-winning composer, lyricist, actor, playwright, and producer, best known for creating and starring in the Broadway musicals Hamilton and In the Heights. You may have also seen him in the recent Mary Poppins film with Emily Blunt, or heard his Oscar-nominated music in Disney's Moana. Lin-Manuel is a global sensation, with Pulitzer, Tony, MacArthur Foundation, Grammy, Kennedy Center and Drama Desk Awards to show for it, and, and many, many more things than we could ever fit into a short bio. So at IG, we're often asked by our charity and nonprofit clients about the role of talent when it comes to fundraising and philanthropy, and how organizations can and, and should appropriately and strategically engage talent in these efforts. We couldn't be more thrilled to explore this topic with Sarah on the show today, trusted collaborator and philanthropic advisor to one of the most A-list celebrities in the world. It was a truly awesome conversation. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome officially, Sarah, to What Donors Want. We are absolutely thrilled to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. It's exciting. So this is kind of a fun episode for listeners. We've got Sarah in New York, Alicia in Scotland, me in London. We're having a very international conversation. Um, and so Sarah, as you know, we always like to start our episodes off before we dive into the meat of the, the philanthropic work that you do. We want to ask a few questions in a speed round format. So you can answer the first thing that comes to your mind. This has nothing to do with philanthropy or social good. This is purely just to promote the idea that donors and the people who work with them are actually just people and, and we all have kind of common interests um, and that's a really important thing to remember when building partnerships. So Alicia and I are going to spit um, spitfire some questions at you. No wrong answer and we'll go from there. Does that sound okay? There are, there are, some, there are some wrong answers. Well, <laughs> <laughs> the, the key is if you know which ones they are, but uh, hopefully it should be pretty painless. Okay, question number one. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Flying. Question two, what was the last show you binge-watched? Vida on Stars. It's this amazing show about these two uh, Latina women who moved back to their um, their uh, neighborhood in LA after their mom dies. And it's so interesting. Just everybody should watch it. And the woman who plays, this is not what I, why I watched it, but the woman who plays the younger sister 
is also in in the Heights movie. Amazing. What was the last book that you read? I've been reading a lot of Brene Brown. So I think the last one was Strong Rising. I think that's what it was. Yep, I've read all of those. <laughs> Adding them to my list. Okay, Tupac or Biggie? Biggie. If you were a Spice Girl, which one would you be? Oh gosh, I don't think I know them well enough, but ah. I guess I guess Sporty Spice, just from the name. That's the best one because she's definitely the only one who can sing. Okay. Oh, well, there you go. Ginger Spice was great, but let's not go into it. <laughs> she oh. was great. She was. She was great as Jerry post-Ginger. <laughs> um, what would 10-year-old Sarah's favorite movie have been? Oh, um, either Annie so good. or Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Oh, amazing. I think those are Both my- of those movies. <laughs> are my current favorite movies. <laughs> right? Ten-year-old Rachel, um, where is your next dream travel destination? You know, I've never been to London except there. Dying to go. That's a dream we can make a reality. Yes, yes. I've been I've been so privileged to be so many places, but it just ne- London has never been. Uh, it's just never worked out. So I, I'm we're trying to make that happen. We will have to remedy that. Um, I put this one in because uh, I know you're going to have a good answer for this. What was the last great meal you ate and where did you eat Oof. it? Okay, the very last hit the spot. It was my husband's chicken soup. And yes, he made it in July because he <laughs> makes chicken soup. He's the most fabulous chicken soup. And he made it, um, he always makes it for people who have babies and a friend had a baby. So he makes like a big pot of it. And um, it was literally the hottest weekend of the year so far. I think it was like 98 degrees. We didn't want to go outside. My son did not want to go to the pool. And yet my husband made chicken soup and it hit the spot. What is your favorite Hamilton song? Oh, that's hard. So I satisfied just structurally. It's just so awesome and and satisfying. But uh, I think room where it happens. Amazing. And finally, our staple question, coffee or tea? Ooh. Ooh. Um, it depends on my mood, but I'll go with green tea. Controversial. <laughs> I know. I know. Especially for the family I work with. Don't, don't tell them. <laughs> awesome. Okay. That is the end of the speed round. It's officially over. Thank you for, uh, for answering those questions for us. And of course, the second half and the, the main part of the podcast is to speak about your work in philanthropy um, with Lin-Manuel Miranda and his family. So I'm going to hand it over to Alicia to ask the first question. So Sarah, you have uh, a pretty amazing job. You are the Director of Philanthropy and Special Projects at 5000 Broadway Productions and the Miranda Family Fund. No relation to my Miranda family, but great name anyway. Um, So can you give our listeners a little bit of an overview of your primary responsibilities in this role? It's so much fun, first of all. The family is unlike a lot of families that sort of come into what you might call new wealth. Um, They have been advocates um, and philanthropists in many ways for 40 years. Luis and Luce's first date was at a protest. So when they had sort of newfound celebrity and money through In the Heights and Hamilton, it wasn't like, tell us what we should believe in. It was more like, help us get deeper into the causes that we're already involved in. And so my work, and I came on two and a half years ago, has largely been about codifying the commitments that they've already made, the relationships that they already have deep in many, in many different um, uh, topics or areas. So 
uh, I help them develop this sort of overview of what their buckets are for better, for, for lack of a better word. And then I think of my work in three roles. One is to help them uh, figure out where to, how to donate their money and be most impactful. Then we do actually a lot of fundraising. So while we are not a foundation, we raise money for causes directly into other organizations. So we have no interest in sort of collecting the money and then doling it out. A lot of the time we'll be raising it directly for an organization such as Planned Parenthood or the Hispanic Federation, which we can get into later. And the third is helping them with advocacy efforts. Again, they don't need to be told what to be interested in. A lot of the times one of them will come to me and say, uh, really, we need to be involved in, in uh, what's happening uh, in Planned Parenthood. And Luce happens to be on the board of the Action Fund. And so h- how do we make the most of Lynn's microphone from an advocacy perspective and our fundraising? That's so interesting, Sarah. I think uh, what an amazing role to have. And it's so, it's so cool to hear about those three different streams that you work within with the family. And, and as you said, Lynn manuel and, and the Miranda family is widely known for their philanthropic generosity long before um, Lynn manuel actually became famous. And you know that's with his family, his parents, his wife, Vanessa, and, and also we know through a lot of his creative initiatives like Hamilton and other songwriting donations, which is incredibly cool. Um, So when it comes to, you said that in the bucket number one, that you kind of help them think about how to donate and and where to go about investing philanthropically in in the different initiatives that are important to the family. So can you speak a little bit about your role um, versus the families and how do you actually work together on a practical level to make decisions and see partnerships through? I find it to be incredibly collaborative. I work on a daily basis with Luis Miranda, Lin-Manuel's father, um, and then a little bit less with the other family members. They are involved sort of in the, the capacity that they're able to be loose. His wife in a much larger capacity, she works part-time still. Um, and then the kids, Lynn and his sister and their spouses, um, a little bit less so because they're all working full-time. So it really varies, but what we've tried to do is um, I'll handle the research. I'll handle uh, if there's there, there's organizations that we already have very long relationships with. For example, there's a wonderful theater called Repertorio Español in uh, in Manhattan. They've been around for 50 years. Uh, actually, Lin Manuel was an intern there in high school. We also had workshopped in the Heights there uh, very very early on. So. It has this incredible role within the theater community in New York City and also within the landscape of Lin-Manuel's career trajectory. So the family had been involved with Repertorio for a very long time. And um, it's so it's not a question as to whether we'll continue to support them. It's a question of how we'll support them. So Luis and I had the chance to meet with them a few weeks ago to just chat about what was going on. And I asked them what um, some of their challenges were. They mentioned losing a fairly large grant from a funder that had been funding a program, like a, a competition for Latinx playwrights, where the winner would actually get their production made. And... Uh, you know, immediately Luis and I were on the same page. That is exactly the type of work that we want to be supporting specifically mm-hmm. because it's, um, we're very interested in one of the buckets, uh, so to speak, is supporting or enhancing the pipeline of artists of color mm-hmm. and how are people that aren't in a network already or aren't in a conservatory already, not that scholarships for 
underserved students are not an incredibly important tool. They're just one of the tool, but we are interested in access, giving access to those who wouldn't necessarily have access. So a playwriting competition that's open is a great uh, opportunity for artists of color and specifically Latinx artists who create an opportunity, right? And um, so we immediately had the same thought that this is where our money should be going. We should pledge a multi-year commitment and then um, and help them raise the rest of the money for this competition. And that helps with the institutional sustainability and uh, their role in the ecosystem of theaters and, and theaters of color but it also helps towards the, goal, the family's goals. And so then Luis and I went to the family um, in a big sort of half yearly meeting that we do. And we reviewed projects like this to make sure that everybody was equally as excited about the projects. So that's the kind of interface that we sometimes have, but it varies. Amazing. And Sarah, do you, how often would you say that you are kind of proactively seeking organizations around a certain area? How many are already known to you or the family when they come to you. Talk us through a little bit of that identification process that you go through. So for the most part, I'm trying to narrow the family's scope and reach so that we can deepen the impact. Um, and so I would say I'm trying not to bring too many new things into the fold. Maybe 80 to 90% are established relationships or at least relationships that are there was something there even if there hadn't been a previous donation. Um, making sure it is in line with the different lanes that we've committed to. But still, I have to be bringing in new projects because specifically for this pipeline initiative, the goal is this much bigger, longer term goal. And so I'm trying to think of different ways that we impact this pipeline. And part of our commitment is that it's medium agnostic. So it's not just theater makers and it's not just filmmakers because I mean, for one, Lin-Manuel is not just any one thing, but also I, we think that the arts is, not, is just increasingly going to become less and less siloed and people are going to be multi-hyphenate. And so finding people in one medium doesn't exclude them from excelling in another medium. So we want to work with programs that do all, all sorts of things. So um, you know, I, I realized that one of the gaps in their portfolio was something that was helping artists of color, like um, fine artists of color. And so I sought out programs that would support fine artists of color. Um, I happened to be talking to an organization in Chicago and chatting with them, learning more about their program. And all of a sudden they talked to me about this conductors of color program that they basically do. That's not what it's called, but basically the program recruits and supports conductors of color which as we know, representation is so important. And so to have more conductors that, that people of color can um, identify with would make a huge impact given that they are leading the orchestra. So we haven't yet uh, talked to the family about that one, but I'm pretty excited. Um, Cause again, it's just, it's just how do we continue to widen that pipeline? Mm -hmm. That's incredible. It's so it's so inspiring to hear about the different kinds of work you do. And, and it's interesting, as you said, um, that you said 80 to 90 percent of the organizations that you work with 
kind of come through or are, are pre-established relationships in some form or another, uh, which is really interesting, particularly from a fundraising perspective, because that's certainly something we hear across all our guests on the show is it comes from relationships and it comes from experience and trust and partnership rather than just a, a, approaching different people for, um, for funding. So there's a few questions about that process of when you first come into contact with an organization up until the point at which um, support is committed in some form or another from the family. So in general, during this process, when you, you, know, you might have that initial meeting with them or you, know, you might even have a more established partnership, what are the things that nonprofits do that make your job easiest, but also hardest? Um, they are able to concisely talk about their work after I've kind of explained the, the family's focus and tie it into the focus. So you never want to be in a situation where you're manipulating your work to fit into a funder's goals. That's the worst thing that you can do. But some people are really able to quickly identify, okay, they're interested in, for example, the pipeline. I'm going to just talk about that a lot because that's a big focus of our work. Um, and so this is the program within our portfolio programs that fits that. And you can, and as a funder, we can tell pretty quickly if that's a genuine program or if they're just kind of making that up to sort of fit in what, with what they, what they think I want to hear. Yeah. And, and what would you say, um, so is, would that be the same thing? So that's what makes your job easiest if they can have a really strong mission alignment and speak about it clearly. On the other mm -hmm. hand of that, are there any really common mistakes that you see organizations making uh, that make it difficult for you to engage with them or perhaps uh, progress the partnership to the next level? I think it's the flip side of that. It's trying to shoehorn in whatever their program is into what they perceive to be our goals. Yeah. And one thing about our funding, which we almost exclusively do, I'd say there are very few places where we don't do this. We almost always provide gen ops funding mm -hmm. because, because we don't want to shoehorn. I mean, we know both Luis and I come from nonprofit world. And if we believe in someone's mission and in someone's specific program, we don't need to put the money there exactly because we think that we want to give the organization as much flexibility and autonomy as possible in terms of their books, but we also need to stay within our mission. I think that's really um, best practice in terms of uh, just general giving, much less kind of individual giving. So um, I'm sure that that comes from plenty of experiences you've had working in the sector yourself. Um, you know, in, in addition to the kind of standard due diligence that you would look at uh, in terms of looking at organizations to partner with, is there anything that is particularly unique to the fact that you're working with a very high profile, very public figure um, when you are kind of connecting or partnering with these organizations? Yeah, I do think that the fact that they are a high profile family makes people interact with us differently. Um, we try to interact with everybody uh, normally, like a, the family's only been famous for three or four years. And so they are very much who they are. Um, they haven't changed. I've known them for 20 years. So, but people definitely reflect something different onto us is my sense. Um, and so to sep kind of separate that out and we don't ever want to put on uh, an organization, any additional work, any additional um, stress because of who Lynn manuel who the Mirandas are. And one thing that we strive to do, especially for nonprofits that we work with, is to always take as much burden off of them as possible. 
I was talking to a nonprofit yesterday, a very tiny nonprofit we work with up in Washington Heights where the family lives. And I said, I'd love to see a report that you've previously submitted to someone else. You don't even need to change the language in the report to say the Miranda family, like literally just send me what you sent them. And I think people are a little bit taken aback by that, but there's just no reason. Like I don't want the family's dollars to be supporting someone's time to just reformat mm-hmm. or, or write a, a report when they could actually be doing other work or, or doing other fundraisers because other fundraisers will require that. Um, The other big difference that we try to do is that when we travel or we incur expenses to participate in an event, the family actually does cover those costs. A lot of the time, most of the time, a nonprofit will offer to cover the costs or to provide an honorarium. And we just want to always keep as much money in their work as possible. Totally. So you can really allow them to focus on their mission and they don't Mm -hmm. need to jump through hoops. to Exactly. I love that. Yeah, that's, I mean, it, it's absolutely best practice and it's incredible that you do that. And it's it's certainly something that philanthropists and, and donors in general are speaking more about, which is that trust and flexibility that you clearly offer all your partners. Um, that's awesome. So in a 2018 interview with Oprah, Lin-Manuel's wife, Vanessa, she had a quote that uh, she said, it can be a full-time job to make sure that you're donating to organizations that are using the money properly. And, and clearly you're very involved in that job as, as the director of 5,000 Broadway Productions and the Family Fund and leading the charge on building those relationships and that trust so that you can um, give in that unrestricted way, which is awesome. So we're wondering if you can speak to us a little bit more about your specific role. I know you said it was really collaborative with the family and it's probably fluid from project to project, but how do you navigate and manage to put your own spin and priorities in the mix while managing the Miranda family's philanthropy and and what's your role of director in that kind of context? Um, When Vanessa said that it takes a full-time job to really assess where the money is going, I think Part of that is the time we spend getting to know the organizations, in particular the directors, to make sure we really understand and trust them. Because what we really don't want to do is micromanage uh, what they're doing with every dollar. Nobody really has interest in that. But I think when you do have a relationship, a real relationship with an organization, and you can really understand the impacts that they're making, you can truly feel confident in the investments that you're making in them. Mm -hmm. And with nonprofit work, often it is nonprofit work because it's not a number of widgets. It's not a number. It's not often a concrete output that is measurable month over month. Sometimes it's very longitudinal, multiple years, decades. Sometimes it's the way a child's confidence grows after being a part of a program. And so you can't you can't quantify that. You can't measure that in a way that will be, you know, you can put in a report. And so that becomes about that relationship with the organization and watching those programs grow over time. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think I come into play because I'm able to focus on this hundred percent of the time. The rest of the family is working. The rest of the family has other obligations. And this is literally my full-time job to make sure that I'm staying in touch with these organizations and really understanding and feeling confident about the investments that they're making. 
Yeah, that's it's, it's amazing that you have um, so much time to be able to dedicate to that. I think it's it's such a, a great indicator of, of the integrity of the, those kinds of investments. And and you mentioned that um, so you, you spend a lot of time getting to know the organizations and getting to trust them without wanting to micromanage where they spend their money. Um, but just to pull out some fundraising insights for some of our listeners who are in the you know, oftentimes in the process of that kind of cultivation. Are there any key things that stand out to you in your experience of what really makes you trust an organization? What are the key elements that you look for when you are building those partnerships at the beginning? Communication and transparency, but also a connection with the director. Um, and that's that's something that intangible you can't teach. The director has this incredibly important and probably superhuman role that we put on nonprofits, right? They not only have to be very, very good at the work that they set out to do, their mission, but they also have to be good at relationship management and managing the, the organization and, um, um, and fundraising. So really, we put a lot of onus on the director to be something that in a for-profit world, you would have multiple people playing those roles. You would never expect the, the president of an organization to do as much as a nonprofit president does. So I think that there's so much of that that's intangible that you, it's just, you got to connect with the person. But the transparency and the communication absolutely helps too. I love that you said that because I think that that is one of the key uh, key things that we see um, when there is a connection in between donors and the organizations they are supporting. And, and it's not always something that's articulated. So, you know, we, we put in all of these very scientific systems around what uh, good partnerships look like, but oftentimes there really is just having that connection that really, really means it. I love the way that you, that you said that. Um, and it's, and Alicia, I'm just going to jump in because it is dangerous, right? You don't want an organization that is really built around the cult of a person, one person personality. And mm-hmm. certainly an organization that like for decades and decades and decades is the same person because that, that organization does not have any longevity. One person can go and come in a moment, even if they are fully committed. Um, so there's a little bit of a, a balance and, and weighing that you have to do around somebody who's been around for a long time. You're totally right. It's connection on a number of levels, right? You have to be connected yeah. to the cause. And an organization uh, needs to ensure that there are multiple connection points within there where that's possible, right? So um, it can't just be about one person to be sustainable. No, that's a fantastic point. Um, I want to jump in uh, with a question, if Rachel will allow me, that wasn't on the guide. So um, answer it's dangerous. <laughs> no, I, I, it's, a, it's a safe one. But um, Sarah, you have this really unique perspective being in your role because you've come to the philanthropy side of things after having worked in a number of different industries, but also having been uh, really deep in the trenches in the nonprofit sector and fundraising on your own. And you've alluded to some of the things that you really put in place that you know are particular pain points for nonprofits and for fundraisers, things like customizing reports for specific donors. What would you say are the kind of top things that you have brought in from your life in the sector before this role to your new position? position or new, not so new anymore, but your position as uh, on the philanthropy side of things, what are the main things that you've really carried over with you from having lived that experience of being on the other side of the table? So structure, um, you know, Luis is like a computer. You can say to him, uh, who is this person? And he can tell you they donated in 2017, $10,000. They skipped 2018 and 2019, they gave another 5,000. I don't have that brain. 
So it's very clear to me that we needed a database because um, I certainly couldn't work in a in a in a silo where I had to ask him every question. Right? I need to have to develop information. But of course, as as time moves on, I want to be able to look um, historically at the giving, at the patterns, at the you know looking at what we've done over a very long period of time. So I immediately got to work get it, putting together a cloud-based database that could could not measure because as we know, some of these things, most of these can't really be measured, but at least looking at the dollars raised, the dollars given, um, and, and having a repository for all of the information, all of that relationship building that we're doing that was now not only going to be through Luis. So that was the structure I'd say was a big part that I've brought and I'm very proud of um, how, how it's evolved over the last two and a half years. We've now brought on a fellow. Uh, she just started a couple weeks ago. She's, uh, she's committed to two years with us, which I'm very excited about. We're not going to be an organization that grows by multiple people every year, by any means. The, it's a very much a family office, and it will, I think it will always stay small. But in order to handle the kind of volume of issues that we want to tackle, we do need to grow a little, especially as we go into the election year next year, which is a really big priority for the family. So we brought in a fellow and she's absolutely wonderful. She started two weeks ago. But as you expand the team, you need the structure to be able to support that. So the, that database, and among other things, um, systems to communicate that we didn't have before really have uh, been very helpful, I think, to the family. And will show themselves too, because in a lot of ways, you don't know what data you're going to need until you need it. And so the key is to make sure that we have that data readily available so that 10 years from now, we can ask a question and maybe we can answer that question um, mm -hmm. historically. I think that's a great answer. We certainly, we, we love structure at IG. And, and I think uh, that's always a big thing that nonprofits are, are trying to focus on and get together because you're right. It, it is really risky to leave all that knowledge within one person's mind. And, and it's, um, it's so important for sustainability to evolve beyond that. But it's, it's so cool that you were on the other side of the table and that you're able to work with your partners to help them, you know, with capacity building, et cetera, I'm sure in your relationship. I think and I think the key is towing the line between structure and bureaucracy. Like we don't want to ever get to a point where it's like, there's a form that you have to fill in to do this so oh. that, you know, we can execute this particular thing. Yeah. Um, we, we don't want to get there, but at the same time that structure is needed when multiple people are doing the same thing or working on the same project. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I think that's a really good point as well. And bureaucracy is where it can go in, in the wrong direction sometimes. Moving now into more of a, a celebrity-focused angle, because of course, I mean, you do this incredible work building partnerships and, and creating so much impact really across the world. Um, and you, of course, you do that with a family and, and particularly with, with a very A-list celebrity, Lin-Manuel Miranda. And so I just want to explore that a little bit more to gain some fundraising insight as well, because we hear from so many listeners and so many of our clients even who come to us and say, oh, you know, if only we could get a celebrity to endorse our cause and then everything mm -hmm. would be perfect. But it's actually a very, 
specific kind of world. And, and usually when a celebrity supports a philanthropic cause, it's usually with a lot more than just cash. So, you know, they can become ambassadors, they can use their platform to raise the profile, etc. But of course, celebrities are incredibly busy people with enormous demands on their time. So our question for you, I know this is, um, of course, you, you, you work specifically with, with one person in that world, but with Lin-Manuel, but also kind of on a, on a broader celebrity lens, do you have any recommendations for nonprofit organizations who are looking to engage with a celebrity based on your unique insight into what, what the day-to-day looks like for them and what factors they should be mindful of when crafting approaches? So through my work with Lemon Wall, I've had the chance to interact with several different celebrities and their teams. So I have a little bit of insight. You know, people engage on very different levels. Some, there's a growing field, I'm sure you all know, of philanthropy advisors that I think you guys do that as well, but celebrities that probably don't have a clue as to what they want to be supportive of. Mm-hmm. So the philanthropic advisor's role is really to help steer them in particular directions. So there's that extreme, and then there's, there's I guess, what the Mirandas would be, which is like, you don't need to tell them anything. They know exactly what they care about and what they're passionate about. Um, but then the key becomes providing just the right amount of information for the celebrity. So, you know, we get a lot of requests. Uh, will you tweet something? Will you um, show up to this event? Will you make a video? And what we found is that, well, for one, there's a there's sort of the category of organizations we've already worked with. So that's a different kind of consideration. Do we want to continue? Have we oversaturated his voice in this arena or in this organization for now? Have we do we have too many other things going on? So it's interesting. I recall something that Lynn has said to a group of art students that sometimes when you audition, it's not about you at all. It's do do we have did we already are you are you filling the very specific gap that we have not yet met with the rest of the cast? Maybe the answer, it may not be that you're not extraordinary. So it kind of reminds me of that where it may not be that the cause is not incredibly important and this is a little cynical, but if, if Lin-Manuel has an email out from Planned Parenthood and um, an op-ed about Puerto Rico out the same week, we're probably not going to do something else around that time period because we believe that it lessens the strength of his voice. If he's just kind of shilling for multiple organizations, the timing may not be right. So that may be one thing for organizations to consider is like, is this person, again, for lack of a better word, overexposed at the moment? Mm -hmm. And you may not know that from the exterior because the team will know all the things that are coming up you won't know necessarily all the announcements they have teed up. Um, But it's also providing the right amount of context. So if it's an organization that doesn't have a a continuing relationship with us, you know, it's, are they providing the right type of um, information to kind of hook our interests to at least get the conversation started? You know, I get a lot of those emails. Will he do a video? Will he tweet this? For organizations that we don't yet have a relationship with. Right. And of those, very quickly, we read out, like, that's not even in our wheelhouse. Now, it's not their fault either. We don't have a website that says all the things we're interested in. So I very gently explain, you know, that's even if it's Puerto Rico, for example, we get a lot of Puerto Rico. I'm doing this project in Puerto Rico. Well, we in Puerto Rico have very specific 
goals now um, after Hurricane Maria. We, we spent a lot of time just raising money in general for Hispanic Federation, which was supporting community-based organizations. And then in 20, uh, end of 2018, 2019, we've really focused on a couple of initiatives, including the development of the coffee sector and the supporting of the arts and culture infrastructure in Puerto Rico. So it's very easy for me to say, I'm so sorry, that doesn't that doesn't really fit within the priorities the family has identified yet. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for the but then there are organizations that do fit in that are new that kind of pique my interest just through an email. It doesn't happen often, mm-hmm. but if you can, you know, it's it's about coming through in a very genuine way, in a very humble way, um, and and doing what is essentially very hard. It's connecting with someone who you have not met with through your words in an email Mm -hmm. and explaining or making the case for your organization and why it's a good fit. There's one organization in particular that supports leadership development for people of color in Chicago. Um, The guy was just a very skilled writer who caught my interest and really explained very clearly why Lynn as a spokesperson for the organization made total sense. And he was diligent about following up, but not too diligent where I was just like, okay, guy, you gotta, you gotta chill out. (laughs) So it was, you know, he found the balance and that's not something you can teach, Mm -hmm. but it is really important. The last thing I'll say is for people not to feel entitled I think when you have a celebrity, a lot of the time people are like, they're public goods. Mm-hmm. And in some ways they are, but they're not, they're human beings. And when they're celebrities like artists, like Lin-Manuel, they actually have another job. Their job is not to be advocates or philanthropists. That's kind of a side gig. And so I get, I get some people that actually get very angry when I say no, or, or, or feel very entitled that, of course, they sh- he should support their organization. How could he not support their organization? And trust me, those, those get filed very quickly. <laughs> yeah, that, that's fantastic. That's such great insight, Sarah. Um, are there, one, you know, you, once you do have a connection, a relationship with someone, uh, are there common mistakes that you see organizations make that might potentially turn the family and you off from committing additional support? Um, not common mistakes. I think it's just a personality relationship thing, which again, I know is so hard to explain, but just like we're all human beings and we all want to be treated with respect, whether it's our executive assistant or uh, or Luis, and everybody wants to be appreciated the nonprofit, the same, the reason that we do this is to support their work, their mission, the, the outcomes that they aspire to. Um, so I'm always very appreciative of the nonprofits work as well. So I think, you know, we're just all human beings. Mm-hmm. We want to be treated well. Yeah. I think it, again, just to jump in here, that's so, it's so interesting because our, our podcast, we're in season two now we've interviewed companies and big foundations and small foundations and intermediaries, just a whole different variety of donors. And that's really what it all comes down to is the relationship management and the human to human connection, um, which is, as you said, it, it 
kind of can't be taught. There is some degree of intuition and just, you know, being aware of interpersonal dynamics. But I think sometimes it's not taught enough um, in some fundraising schools, yeah. the relationship-based approach to partnership building and, and how it can feel. I think nonprofits sometimes think that it can feel like a waste of time. You know, it's you're not submitting an application, it feels like endless coffees or emails, but actually it's so, it's so beneficial and the return on investment of really good relationships is so lucrative and, and um, just so beneficial in the long term. So it's really cool to hear you reflect that. And I think that it's really important also to remember that it's, you kind of have all the, always in the back of your head, at least I do, and maybe I'm not typical, I have no idea, this feeling like, oh God, this person wants money from me. Like I always have that I'm very aware of that. Mm. And so the more you can make it about a real relationship yeah. and bring it away from that. And, and sometimes, and I've heard this suggested other places, like sometimes it's asking for advice rather than money. That makes people feel, and I think that's, there's, um, there's research about this too, is asking for help is actually something that in, quite endears you to people rather than... Um, you ask you providing someone help so that that is something that is really important too yeah it's a, my favorite fundraising saying is if you want advice ask for money if you want yeah. money ask for advice that's that's kind of what it all boils down to so sarah uh really a kind of final question for you which is what is the one key thing you want our listeners to take away from this conversation I think the one key thing is that we're all human beings and we all have shared interests in moving the needle, especially in the nonprofits uh, sector. So we all want to make something better. And I don't, there's no answer. There's no single, there's no bullet for how to be better at relationships and better at building these communities. Just like there's no single bullet for fixing a really deep problem in society. And I think it's all about recognizing that whether you're a celebrity or not, whether you're a funder or a nonprofit, we are all human beings. Would I love that? <laughs> I know. <laughs> what a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Sarah, for your time and, and for your generosity and, and as well to the Miranda family um, for just for all your insight and, and uh, for all your thoughts on the show today. It's going to be so helpful to so many listeners. Thank you so Thank much. You for having me. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of What Donors Want. And a huge thank you to Sarah for her generous time and advice and also to the Miranda family. As always, we'd love to hear from you if you have any questions or comments. You can check us out online at impactandgrowth.com. Say hello to us on Twitter. Our handle is at IG underscore advisors or come find us in London. Uh, we've got lots more exciting episodes lined up through the end of the year and we're already starting to plan for season three. So lots of fun stuff coming up and uh, we really would love to hear from you about any requests you might have for that. Thanks again for listening. It really means a lot to us and uh, see you soon. Mm-hmm.